Ten-year-old Mikey hurried along, trying to keep up with his dad, George, as the pair made their way toward the horse race track. Mikey always loved seeing the horses break out of the gate and plunge their hooves into the soft dirt as their jockeys pushed them around the track. George already owned several horses and needed to speak with the trainer about potentially buying another one. He gave Mikey the option to either go to a nearby playground or stay with him. It took Mikey all of two seconds to make that decision. He gave his dad a parting goodbye and sprinted toward the playground. George was an experienced entrepreneur who also earned a lot of money in racing his horses. He needed to find a good quarter horse that could balance out his winnings. After a few minutes of talking with the trainer, George looked over toward the playground and saw some junior high-aged kids pushing Mikey around, bullying him. He yelled, Hey, Michael, come back over here. Although he hated that his son was continually bullied because of his small size, he had work to do and couldn't deal with things now. Mikey ran back over to his father with tears in his eyes. George looked down at him with compassion and told him, I'm so sorry, Mikey, but bullies are just going to be bullies. Sometimes there's no justice. He gave him a reassuring pat on the back. Mikey then looked up at his dad and asked, what is justice? George thought about this for a little bit and added, When you get what's coming to you. Later, as the race was in full swing, George looked down at Michael and expected him to be cheering on one of his favorite colts. However, Mikey looked as if he was in another world as he stared back over his shoulder where the playground was. His dad figured that he was still upset about the bullying incident. After the race was over, George decided he would close the deal and went over to speak with the trainer about buying the horse. Wait right here, Michael, he pointed at the seat. I need to go talk with someone. As he was bartering with the trainer, he glanced over to where he had left Michael and saw him make a beeline back towards the bullies in the playground. He was about to say something, but instead decided to allow things to play out. He saw the bullies sitting on some swings, totally oblivious to Michael who was rushing towards them at full speed. When he arrived, he shoved one of the bullies off their swing. George then realized that Michael had probably been planning his vengeance ever since the beginning of the horse race. After pushing all the bullies off their swings, they chased Michael up into a metal rocket ship with a spiral staircase with slides coming out at various levels. As the bullies chased Mikey up the stairs, he kicked at them to keep them away. Finally, they arrived at the top level, and Mikey escaped down one of the slides. There was about a 40-yard distance between George and the playground, and the next thing he knew, Mikey was running as fast as his short legs could carry him, all the while with a huge smile on his face. Before plowing straight into his dad, George grabbed Mikey's hand and swung him around behind him. The bullies, hard on his heels, then saw George and took off running in the opposite direction. While on the ride home, Mikey looked up at his dad and said, Dad, I think that was justice. George smiled to himself, realizing that his son had found a way to divulge justice on the bullies. He was able to be that instrument of justice, instead of just watching people get away with their bullying. Mikey didn't have to be the strongest or the smartest guy. He just had to keep on trying to enact his justice. He believed in fairness and would fight for it whenever he could. He also wasn't afraid of failure. With each unsuccessful attempt, 
he would just regroup and push on. That was the type of person Mikey was. Some of his friends, who didn't have the courage to fight back like Mikey did, began to cheer him on and looked up to him as their champion. A shift happened that day at the racetrack that remained with Michael for the rest of his life. It was a huge rearranging of his thought process that changed the trajectory of his life for the better. This podcast is about heroes in military and law enforcement. Some gave their service for America and served in the armed forces. Some have paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom and others protected the local community and died in the line of duty. Our lives would be a whole lot different if it weren't for the hard work and sacrifice of these brave men and women. They could have gone on to live lives that were less dangerous. However, they dedicated themselves to your protection. If you ever have the pleasure of talking to one of them, they'll tell you, I'm not a hero, but I have the honor of walking beside a few. Others will say, the real heroes are those who didn't make it back home. This episode is dedicated to U.S. Navy SEAL Master at Arms 2nd Class, Michael Mikey Anthony Mansour, Delta Platoon, SEAL Team 3, Iraq War. Michael Mansour was born on April 5, 1981, in Long Beach, California, the third of four children born to George and Sally Boyle Mansour. His great-grandparents were steadfast Catholics who immigrated from Lebanon in the 1920s. Most of the men in the Mansour family served in the military. Mikey's uncles were Marines in World War II and Korea, and several others were in the Army. His grandfather served in the Navy during World War II and was a two-pounder anti-aircraft gunner, a.k.a. a pom-pom gunner, on a destroyer. It was his job to shoot down any enemy aircraft that approached. After the war, he suffered from severe PTSD and had a very short temper. He was in and out of the hospital many times and couldn't hold down a job for very long. Eventually, he earned his living by being a professional poker player. Michael's father, George, was born in Wisconsin and moved to Southern California with his family at a young age. He attended an all-boys Catholic school and then went straight to UCLA. At this time, it was the height of the Vietnam War and not wanting to be drafted into the army to be a grunt, George wanted to have some control over his decision. He ended up serving in the Marine Corps from 1968 to 1972 in a helicopter crew. Michael grew up struggling with asthma. Out of all his siblings, he was small and weak, and any time he did anything that required prolonged effort, he would be left gasping for air. Despite this, he still refused to quit, and it was hard for anyone to hold him back. However, being too weak to participate in sports, he was bullied a lot. When he was young, Mikey would do things that his parents shook their heads at and would say, what was he thinking? He'd see a challenge, and no matter how many obstacles were in his way, he would push through to the end. From bike riding to skiing, snowboarding, bodyboarding, or spearfishing, he was very driven to try everything at least once. When he heard how tough something was, he saw it as a challenge to overcome and had to try it. After several failed attempts, he would usually master a skill and smile in the face of his doubters. Certain people are motivated by you can't. They make sacrifices 
and that is what drove Michael. At around junior high age, Michael first heard about the Navy SEALs, most likely from one of his dad's marine friends who would sometimes stop by the house for a barbecue. After a few beers, the stories started pouring out about their experiences in Vietnam. Mikey kept things to himself about the SEALs, but silently decided that one day he would take up the challenge and join the U.S. Navy's elite warriors. Eventually, he began strengthening his lungs by racing his siblings in the family's swimming pool. Although his body was once weak, his mind was determined to overcome his affliction. Eventually, he got to a place where asthma was a thing of the past, and he was much more capable of handling strenuous exercise. Michael attended Dr. Walter C. Ralston Intermediate School and Garden Grove High School in Garden Grove, California, and played tight end on the school's football team, graduating in 1999. He enlisted in the U.S. Navy on March 21, 2001, with the intention of making it to Bud's. In a post-9-11 world, Mike knew that by joining the military, war was no longer a conceptual idea, but a very practical one. After boot camp graduation, his RDC, the Navy's version of a drill instructor, saw Mike's unrelenting spirit and can-do attitude and told his parents that he would make a great SEAL. However, Mike didn't finish his first attempt at Bud's. His parents lived close to Coronado, where Bud's took place, and would sometimes see him on weekends. His dad knew he was suffering. He remembers when his feet looked like ground-up hamburger meat. Unfortunately, Mike had to ring the bell and quit his first attempt at Bud's. His father remembers when he came home to him. The only words he said were, I lost, I failed. He was sick about it, but then he woke up the next morning and decided to go back and try again. It was his plan to spend the next few years training hard and preparing his body for the grueling six months of SEAL training. Mikey attended Quartermaster A School and then transferred to Sicily at Naval Air Station Signola, Italy. While there, he became stronger, got his confidence back, and spent two years of retraining. When he returned to the States, he told his parents, I'm a little smarter now, and I know how to take care of my body. They then knew that he was ready. He re-entered Bud's training for a second attempt. This time, he knew what was expected and was able to navigate things better. He arrived prepared, ready, and took better care of his body. Sometimes he would help out a fellow Bud's trainee, even if he didn't know them. Once, he encountered a slow runner. Mike would hang back and keep talking with them, encouraging them to keep on going. Towards the end of the run, he would sprint forward and finish with the top runners. During one of his weekend visits, his father asked him what he would do if he failed Bud's a second time. Mikey just looked at him and said, I told you I was going to be a SEAL. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. Mikey Mansour graduated with SEAL Class 250 on September 2, 2004, as one of the top performers. After BUDS, he attended advanced SEAL courses, including parachute training at Basic Airborne School, cold weather combat training in Kodiak, Alaska, and six months of SEAL qualification training in Coronado, California. He enjoyed SEAL school after BUDS because he could experience more of the functioning elements and the specific aspects about how SEALs operate. 
He graduated in March 2005 as an official U.S. Navy SEAL. Odd-numbered SEAL teams are stationed in San Diego on the West Coast, and even-numbered SEAL teams are stationed on the East Coast in Virginia Beach. Mikey didn't have a preference as to where he wanted to go. He just wanted to serve and be a SEAL. Whenever Mike was home on leave, he would go out with his high school friends and celebrate. One of the things he would tell them was to never, ever let others know that he was a SEAL. He was bothered by some of his SEAL teammates who sought after glory and would boast to people that they were Navy SEALs, but they wouldn't really sacrifice for the team. Mike would rather remain anonymous and instead have his character speak for him. The following month, his rating changed from Quartermaster at Arms and he was assigned to Delta Platoon SEAL Team 3 San Diego. Not too long afterwards, some of Team 3 were deployed to Iraq and others went to the Philippines. Mike was proud to go to Iraq because all his closest teammates were there. Conversations with his dad before deployment were pretty serious. At that time, operations in Iraq were some of the most dangerous in the world. Mike shared with his parents that he would be training Iraqi troops and there was not much to worry about. He was surrounded by SEALs who knew what they were doing and would have his back. His dad dropped him off at the base the day he deployed and had a bad feeling in his gut. After hugging his son, he watched him join the rest of his troops as they boarded the airplane. While Mike was deployed, Mark Lee, another SEAL in his sister platoon, was killed. This made his parents worry and they joined with Mark's family as they grieved the loss of their son. However, the Monsoors never knew that they would also be sharing the same sorrow with the Lee family not too long afterwards. SEAL Team 3 Delta Platoon was sent to Ramadi, Iraq in April 2006 for Operation Kentucky Jumper and was initially assigned to train Iraqi army soldiers. As a communicator and machine gunner on patrols, Mansoor carried 100 pounds of gear in temperatures that also exceeded 100 degrees. He took a lead position to protect the platoon from frontal assaults, and the team frequently made contact with insurgents. During the first five months of deployment, the team, led by legendary SEAL Jocko Willink, and supported at times by SEAL sniper Chris Kyle, reportedly killed 84 enemy fighters. Mike even volunteered to extend his deployment because one of his teammates' wives was having a baby. He was one of those selfless people who would always offer his help when he was most needed. He was willing to step up into a place for others who seemed to be the least deserving and absorb their burdens and everything attached. The nature and the amount of trust put into fellow SEALs made them feel like a family. As brothers, they were willing to lay down their lives for the operator, friend, or ally next to them. Family doesn't have to be blood, and there was a strong bond between the SEALs. As a SEAL, one of the greatest accolades you can have is being known as reliable, Mike Sorelli, one of Mansoor's teammates, said in an interview. Reputations in the SEAL teams is everything, especially if you're a quiet guy who just performs. Your reputation skyrockets, and Mikey was that guy. He was dependable, especially in a firefight in the streets of Ramadi. Mansoor's reputation was proven during an engagement on May 9, 2006. During the firefight, Mansoor ran into the street while under continuous insurgent gunfire to rescue an injured comrade. 
He was awarded the Silver Star for his actions and the Bronze Star for his service in Iraq. Mikey called his parents on the morning he was killed. They were unable to get to the phone in time, so Mikey left a message. Mom and Dad, you're going to be so sorry you missed me, he stated before ending the call. Those were the last words they ever heard him say. Those words played over and over in their minds for the rest of their lives. On September 29, 2006, only days before Mike was to go home, his four-man SEAL team and eight Iraqi army scouts engaged four insurgents in a firefight, killing one and injuring another. They had penetrated deep into enemy-held territory in the Mulab district of Ramadi while under the cover of darkness. We had operated in the area before, team leader Mike Sorelli remembered. We knew it, and we had chosen a predominant building that would give us a marked advantage over the enemy, high up, high over the positions on the street. On this rooftop position, Mansour, three SEAL snipers, and the Iraqi army soldiers remained vigilant. Sorelli placed Mansour with his heavy machine gun in a hidden spot near the rooftop's only exit. Sorelli recalled, When the morning hours hit and the sunlight came up, we almost immediately came under contact and eliminated a few fighters. There were intermittent attacks throughout the day. Several hours into the fight, the SEALs and Iraqi soldiers saw civilians aiding the insurgents by blocking off the streets, and a nearby mosque broadcasted a message for people to fight against the Americans and the Iraqi soldiers. Mansour was protecting two other SEAL snipers, Mike Sorelli and Doug Wallace, who were 15 feet away from him. Another SEAL, Benjamin Olson, was situated behind him. Mansour's position made him the only SEAL on the rooftop with quick access to an escape route. Somehow, a grenade was thrown over the lip of the wall and onto the rooftop by an insurgent from the street below. Mike Sorelli describes Mansour's self-sacrificing act on that day. And so he made a very conscious and deliberate selfless decision. He looked in my direction and yelled, Grenade! and jumped down on it. Benjamin Olson, one of the other SEALs with Mansour, watched everything happen in front of him. Being behind Mikey, what I remember hearing was, Grenade! and the next thing I knew was the explosion. I got knocked out for a few seconds, and when I came to, I had three of my very close friends wounded. Here is an excerpt from Chris Kyle's book, American Sniper. The grenade hit him in the chest and bounced onto the deck, the Navy term for floor. He immediately leaped to his feet and yelled grenade to alert his teammates of impending danger, but they could not evacuate the sniper hide site in time to escape harm. Without hesitation and showing no regard for his own life, he threw himself onto the grenade, smothering it to protect his teammates who were lying in close proximity. The grenade detonated as he came down on top of it, mortally wounding him. Petty Officer Mansour's actions could not have been more selfless or clearly intentional. Of the three seals on that rooftop corner, he had the only avenue of escape away from the blast, and if he had so chosen, he could have easily escaped. Instead, Mansour chose to protect his comrades by the sacrifice of his own life. By his courageous and selfless actions, he saved the lives of his two fellow SEALs. Mike Sorelli recalled, All I felt was pain. I quickly looked back toward Mikey's direction. His head was facing my direction, 
His eyes were open. I yelled, Mikey, Mikey, Mikey! And there was nothing. He was just lifeless, and my heart sank. And then it just got worse from there. The remaining seals then came under intense fire from the streets. The radio was totally destroyed, and the Iraqi soldiers who had been with them had all run off. The only man capable of responding was Ben Olson. I quickly tried to assess the situation, remembers Olson. What was kind of going through my mind was, I'm in a really terrible location. I took small fragments to my calves, but I'm the most maneuverable, operable out of all four of us that were there. Olsen dragged Mansour to the middle of the rooftop and started administering first aid. Although severely wounded, Sorelli was able to crawl to a disoriented and horrified Iraqi soldier, where he tried to figure out how to operate his out-of-date radio. Eventually, Sorelli was able to arrange for a transport. Help arrived within minutes, although to the SEALs, it felt much longer. The arriving rescuers had to fight their way through insurgents before they could get to their building. They threw myself, Mikey, and Doug into the Bradley fighting vehicle, and then we took off for the aid station, Sorelli said. Again, it seems like ages. It probably took around 20-25 minutes. All I remember is another SEAL doing chest compressions on Mikey to keep him alive. He was declared deceased when we got to that aid station. It took a while for Mikey to arrive back to the States. The Mansours patiently awaited at the Air Force Base, but finally saw the transport plane land with Mikey. They were then given a room to have some private time alone with him. George, their father, went in first. Eventually, the rest of the family joined him, and they all spent their last moments with Mikey. They took turns holding his hand, touching him, and speaking their last words to him. The Monsur family first had a private mass before the actual funeral. During the funeral at Fort Roscrans National Cemetery in San Diego, a group of Patriot Guard riders, a voluntary group of veterans on motorcycles, stood guard to protect the grieving family from groups of protesters who tried to upset the proceedings. As the coffin was moving from the hearse to the gravesite, Navy SEALs were lined up forming a column of twos on both sides of the pallbearer's route, with the coffin moving up the center. As the casket passed each SEAL, they slapped down the gold trident each had removed from his own uniform and deeply embedded it into the wooden coffin. For nearly 30 minutes, the slaps were heard from across the cemetery as nearly every SEAL on the West Coast repeated the traditional act. The typical tough, hard exterior of the seals was now softened as tears streamed down many of their faces. The display moved many who attended the funeral, including President George W. Bush, who spoke about the incident later during a speech, saying, The procession went on nearly half an hour, and when it was all over, the simple wooden coffin had become a gold-plated memorial to a hero who will never be forgotten. On March 31, 2008, the United States Department of Defense confirmed that Michael Mansour would posthumously receive the Medal of Honor. On April 8, 2008, George Mansour, his wife Sally, their three surviving kids, and nine grandkids were all invited to the White House. President Bush met them in the Oval Office, and one of the grandkids ran up to him and hugged his leg as if he were one of the family. 
The other grandkids were all over the office, climbing on the desk and pushing buttons. President Bush accepted them with smiles, welcomed them, and treated the family with respect. Not too long afterwards, his eyes wet with tears, President Bush presented the Medal of Honor to Monsieur's parents. While the family was in Washington, D.C. during the ceremony, the Secretary of the Navy, Donald C. Winter, approached them and said that he would be honored to name a ship after Mike. In October 2008, DG-1001, a Zumwalt-class guided missile destroyer, was named the USS Michael Monsoor in his honor. In 2022, the book Defend Us in Battle by George Monsoor and Rose Rea was produced. It depicts Mikey's early life and how he beat all odds to become a legendary Navy SEAL. It was George's intention that, in reading the book, people would know what a giving person Mikey was. If he had something that someone else needed, he would either share it with them or give it to them. He was always that generous. Michael would never lose his cool and always kept a calm demeanor, where most people would lose their tempers. He would endure bad news knowing that life was tough. Mike received more pleasure out of helping people instead of remaining comfortable. I miss him, Benjamin Olson said in an interview. Part of me wishes he wouldn't have done it because he was a great friend. But I'm very thankful because I am here today. By him going down on that grenade, I now have a family. I have three kids, and I owe that all to Mikey. We're all trying to live in Mikey's memory to the best of our ability, said Mike Sorelli. Sorelli mentioned that Mansoor is the first thing he thinks of in the morning and the last thought he thinks of before going to sleep at night. He even named his son after his fallen brother. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Remember My Name podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at RememberMyNamePodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at RememberMyNamePodcast and Twitter at RMNPodcast. Now take a moment and remember this name, Michael Monsoor. <laughs>